Our scripture lesson today is from Exodus 32. We do not follow man-made fan fancy or fable, but the word of the living God. He alone has claim to our hearts and allegiances. Let us heed him as he speaks from his word. Okay, so Exodus 32, and it's the entire chapter. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took them what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, 
His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then the ground it to then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, Why did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They then, or then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so becoming, so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, "Whoever is the Lord, come to me." And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, "This is what the Lord." The God of Israel says, Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites, the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. We continue to preach through the book of Exodus, and we come to this famous story in Exodus 32. This is a hard story, and we're going to have to talk about some hard things. So let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, I pray that you would be with all of us now as we reflect on these realities, the sins and failures of your people. Pray that you would be with us sinners reflect on and sit under your word and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what has gone wrong with the church, with God's people? And I don't just mean Kish to be clear. This morning we're going to be reflecting on the church in a larger way, but we're also a part of that church, so we have to include ourselves. But what has gone wrong. 
I mean, I think a lot of us have a sense that something has gone wrong. Some of us, I think, really focus on the external, cultural signs that that is true. Um, Christians talk a lot about the growing secularism of the West or the decreasing respect that Christian institutions get, things like that. More than that, a lot of us also recognize that there are changes and issues not just in the world, but in the church, right? There are megachurch pastors who get paid millions of dollars while breaking the law or their marriage vows or whatever and face basically no consequences. There are churches that cover up scandals and sexual abuses and things like that. And you can also feel that in the much smaller, more invisible issues, just the way that Christian discipleship doesn't feel like it's as deep and meaningful for us as believers as it once did. The way churches are segregated in terms of race and also in terms of things like age and socioeconomics, the way that we excuse certain sins, pretending like they're not as bad as other sins, so that we can try to deliver ourselves from judgment. I could just keep going, right? If the task is sort of just list all the issues that the church has in different places, we'd probably spend our whole sermon doing that. But what has gone wrong? This story from Exodus 32 is really one way to answer that question. And this week, as I sat with it and reflected on it, I became more and more convinced that what it is really trying to do is help us understand why, how we often go wrong, and some of how God responds to that. And so I want us to take it and answer two questions. First, what has gone wrong? How typically do God's people go wrong? And then secondly, what, how does God respond, and what hope do we have? First, what has gone wrong? And it's important to understand that that answer in this story comes in two stages. There's two stages to what happens. First, we are prone to idolatry. That's the first issue that causes us to go wrong, and the more general one. All of us are prone to idolatry. Just a reminder of where we are in the story. Uh, Israel has come to this mountain, and God has met with them, and they've received the Ten Commandments and made this covenant with God, and then Moses has gone back up onto the mountain to receive the full law and the instructions for the tabernacle, And the glory of the Lord is on this mountain. It's like fire and lightning and all of this. And Moses is up there for 40 days. And meanwhile, back in the camp, this is what's going on with Israel. Starting in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now, two things about that. One... Israel's fear in this situation is understandable. They're in the wilderness, they're surrounded by enemies, and Moses has been gone on this mountain for 40 days. I mean, I get how, like, you know, if someone, like, says, I'll be right back, and runs into a forest fire, right? And then weeks pass, there's part of me that's going to be questioning (laughs) whether he's okay. But at the same time, the response is also insane. I mean, they have just heard directly from God and vowed to obey him. And he is like literally visibly present on the mountain before them. And they say, okay, this isn't working. We need to find some other gods to trust in. 
So then verse 2, what happens? Aaron answers, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. This is the gold that God miraculously provided them as they left Egypt. And then it continues, So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And we'll talk more about Aaron in a minute. But what happens is that, Israel, is that Aaron makes this golden calf, and the people say, All right, forget this God of Moses up on the mountain. Here is this other God, or gods, in Hebrew it could be either, but here is our God that brought us out of Egypt. And just think about how quickly this happened. I mean, Israel just got the Ten Commandments 40 days ago, right? And it's, do not, you know, worship other gods, do not make um, idols, are the first two of those commandments. And already, they're breaking them. It's not like they spent years out in the wilderness lost. And really, that quickness to turn aside is God's central charge when he speaks to Moses on the mountain. He says to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I command them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And first, I love that God talks to Moses the way like Elizabeth and I sometimes talk when our kids are getting in trouble, right? He's like, your child, you know, your people that you brought out of Israel, you're supposed to hear his frustration, but his frustration stems from how quickly they became corrupt. It did not take them long at all to turn aside to idolatry. And the point of that quick turn to idolatry is not for us to sit in judgment and think that we are so much better than them. The point of that is to stress to us that just like them, we are prone to idolatry. An idol is anything that we look to to do the work of God in our lives. I'll say that again. It is anything we look to to do the work of God in our lives. Anything we look to for salvation or protection or direction that is not God. And that's what Israel's doing with this golden calf. We are not used to idols as statues in our culture, but this is a symbol of strength and fertility in their world, right? And that's what they're looking to for hope. Why do they chase idols, and why do we? Because following them seems easier than following the Lord. Israel is afraid of this fiery glory of God up on the mountain. This golden cow just seems more approachable. A God that they can touch and trust in. And we do the same thing, man. When we chase after recognition or money or people's approval or physical security, we are doing that because it seems easier to us than following the Lord. I mean, like my future feels insecure some days, right? And I, I understand that God says that he controls and is watching over my future. But you know what feels more reliable than that? It's having a bunch of money in the bank. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's having the kind of, like, balance in the bank where I'm like, okay, I'm going to be okay for the future. And, of course, ultimately, that cannot secure me. It cannot provide what it promises. I mean, 
no matter how much money in the bank I have, I can't actually make myself secure in this life. No matter how many people like me, I cannot actually feel significant. No matter how physically healthy I get, I can't actually be immortal. However, um, God can—well, only God can truly do those things. It's often hard to trust him because we can't see him and we can't easily control him. And as a result, all of us human beings are incredibly prone to making idols. John Calvin, the great theologian, famously said that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And just to be clear, here's some of the idols in our world. Prosperity, success, political power, the American dream with its white picket fence and two children, entertainment. I think so many people in our world think that just staying entertained will somehow make us happy. Our children and their success can easily be idols. The stuff we buy. I mean, so many advertisements really just boil down to saying like, do you want to enter the promised land? This is the car that will get you there. This is the bank, you know, that will finance your journey. So that's the first thing that goes wrong. We are prone to idolatry. But to do justice to this story and the way that God's people get messed up, we need to understand that something else is happening alongside it. In this story, Israel is not the only actor. Aaron, the high priest of Israel, and the one that Moses leaves in charge, is also involved. And so the second step in this story it tells is that our leaders compromise with idolatry. Those who lead the church lead the church in ways that end up compromising idolatry. So this is where we need to pay close attention to how the story works. So look again at verse 4. It says of Israel that they said, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. What's important here is notice the pronoun, okay? So Aaron makes the golden calf, and what Israel says is, here is this other god that led us out of Egypt. And now here is how Aaron responds. It says that when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And you might notice, if you're following along in your Bible, that word Lord is in caps, which means that's Yahweh. That's God's name. So it, Aaron makes this golden calf, and they say, here's our new God. And, it, and Aaron says, no, 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 this is actually the Lord, Yahweh, who you've been serving all the time. Now, of course, does the Lord want Israel to make golden calves and bow down to them to worship him? No, right? But Aaron is trying to strike a compromise to say, well, don't go worship this other god. Like, you can worship God in this golden calf. And you see that continue in verse 6. It says that the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So on the one hand, they do these things that Scripture commands, right? Worship of the Lord, offering burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. That's actually just a couple chapters ago what Israel did when they made their covenant with God. But then the other, the eat and drink and indulge in revelry, which um, probably in Hebrew means they had an orgy, just to be clear. Like, that's the language of a pagan feast, right? So again, they come and they, they do this thing that in part is the sort of worship of the Lord that he commands, and in part is this sort of pagan festival to false gods. Again, it's that kind 
of compromise. And Aaron, in making that compromise, is actually viewed as especially responsible in this story for Israel's sin. If you jump ahead to verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? He says, how did you let this happen? And here's Aaron's response. First, he tries to blame the people. He says, do not be angry, my lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. But notice, notice how he dodges Moses' question. Moses says, what did these people do to you? And the answer to that is nothing, right? They didn't chain him up. They didn't, like, you know, try to kill him or something. But he's just saying, you know how these people are prone to doing bad stuff to cover up the fact that really he's just afraid of them. And then listen to how he spins the story in verse 24. He says, I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And to be clear, that's not what happens, right? The story makes clear that, you know, Aaron's the one who takes the gold and fashions it into the calf. But he's trying to avoid the responsibility that Moses is clearly laying at his feet. But Moses and God know better. In verse 25, it says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So it's not that the people are blameless in this. They are involved in the sin of idolatry. But it's also the case that the problem comes when Aaron does not do his job, does not seek to correct them and call them back to faithfully follow the Lord, but when he leads them in compromising with that idolatry. It's those two things together that end up getting Israel in this kind of trouble. I often hear pastors um, talking about the struggles of the church and of the world try to blame different stuff for the church's problems. They blame the culture, and they blame the government, and they blame uh, the fact that there's not prayer in schools or whatever. And sometimes they even try to blame their congregants. They talk about how, you know, these people just aren't as interested in these things anymore. But here's the thing that haunts me often as a pastor. The Bible assumes that often, not always, but often, when the church has issues, it is in large part because those leading the church have failed to do their jobs, because they have in fact led the church in ways that compromise with those issues. And I say that with an enormous amount of soberness in my own heart, because one of my consistent prayers is that I would be faithful and not do that. But I think that one of the great failings in the church in America is that we have often chosen to compromise in many different ways with the world. And to be clear, I mean all of us have. Both kind of sides of the church in America have been guilty of doing this. Um, if you're unfamiliar with kind of the religious world in America, people tend to divide it into kind of mainline churches and evangelical churches. If you hear people use those labels, mainline churches are those that people would understand as theologically liberal, that they don't hold to the authority of the Bible or things like the resurrection and the necessity of Jesus. And evangelical churches are those that would be what they'd call theologically conservative and still insist on those things. But both of those groups are often guilty of compromising with idolatry in America. 
mainline. That happened in pretty visible ways. Its history is really one of theological compromise. During the 20th century, as people um, got more uncomfortable with all the like miracles and hard things in the Bible, its response theologically was to say, you know, just don't worry about all that stuff. Like, we don't really have to believe that. And it happened morally when Christianity's teachings on moral issues became less popular. Um, the mainline did kind of do that same thing and say, yeah, don't worry about any of that either. You know, you don't really have to believe that. And it happened politically. The mainline church has been very much willing to compromise um, biblical teachings when it challenges. They tend to lean towards the political left, so when it challenges that side in the country. And evangelicals have often been quick to point that out about the mainline. But evangelicalism is also compromised in its own ways. And to be clear, while I personally am no lover of labels, Theologically, right, Kish is an evangelical church. We believe that the Bible is God's perfect word and that it's authoritative and we should believe what it says. But, um, but it is especially important to me that we feel the weight of our side of the compromise. In the first place, we have always been morally compromised in our nation in some significant ways. Um, when people started confronting racism in our country, it was the evangelicals much more than the mainline who tended to defend things like segregation. Um, in a country where greed is probably the greatest sin that we've had for the last hundred years, we've gotten very good at telling people, like, you know, as long as you put your 10% in the offering plate, we're not going to worry about the rest of it. I mean, all of the, like, you know, multi-millionaire, Rolls-Royce-driving prosperity teachers that are, you know, fleecing God's people, those are all evangelicals. And that happened politically. I remember a few years ago seeing this really striking public interchange where one evangelical pastor said some stuff that was kind of critical of the political right. And another evangelical publicly told him, like this very famous evangelical pastor, that he needed to shut up because, and I quote, um, saying that kind of thing will make us lose our seat at the table. Right? That's, that's not, I mean, that's not about what scripture says, right? That's just about saying no. We want to compromise so that we can have influence. I mean, this is, this is hard stuff, but just something I find myself thinking about a lot. The, the public, um, the, the PRRI does this big survey at, before every election of people's views, and they, they look at religion. And one of the things that's haunted me in the last few years is that for decades when they did this survey, evangelicals were the people that said that people's character mattered. In, in terms of, you know, of leadership in the world. If you at, when they, you would, they would ask the question, does someone's personal moral character matter for how they lead people? And like 75% of evangelicals every, every four years would say that it did, right? Um, we were by far more than any other group in America, um, the group that said that personal character mattered. Um, and that was true in 2012, it was 75%. In 2016, that number dropped from 75% to 26% of evangelicals who were willing to say that someone's moral character mattered for leadership. Um, and what changed in that time was not how we understood the Bible, right? You know, but now more atheists say that it matters than evangelicals, and it's just because it got politically inconvenient for us to say that. The mainline church compromised with the political left, and the evangelical churches tended to compromise with the political right. And I'm not interested in commenting on which politics you should prefer, but that's a problem for all of us. 
in America. The point of all of that is that the church in America, I think, in all kinds of ways, has been willing to make those compromises and to say when God's word becomes inconvenient or challenges our idols, that we're going to try to strike a balance where we do some of each. The church in America has done that so much that sometimes I wonder if we even can see it. So just think about, like, the church in the Bible is this, like, radical, world-changing, transformed community where people live in this, like, fellowship um, together and this new humanity trying to follow Jesus. And you take that and you take the kind of country club, civic organization thing that the church so often is in America, and the gap between those things is how far we've compromised. So that's hard stuff, and I feel the weight of that. And so how does God respond? What does he do? How does he address that? And there's really two layers to that as well. I just want to acknowledge that the first one of those layers is also kind of hard. But, um, but the second one has some good hope in it, so hold on. But the first answer in this story is God's purifying discipline. The first way that he responds to that compromise in God's people is with purifying discipline. We can see that in Moses' initial response. When he gets back to the camp, it says that he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire, and he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. That image there actually becomes repeated in Scripture, an image of God's discipline, of like grinding up our idols and then us having to drink the, you know, the, the outcome of them. You also see it in this very challenging seen a little later in the story. And first of all, for it to make sense, we should recognize that while the camp of Israel as a whole is worshiping the golden calf, does not mean every Israel is equally involved in this thing, right? Well, none of them have sort of like done what they ought to and separated themselves from it. You know, I mean, there's people who kind of were the ones who drove this happening and others that are just kind of around in the camp, which we need to understand to make sense of some of what follows. But if you look at verse 26, Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. So Moses calls for those who will be faithful to the Lord, and a group of Levites responds. Levi is the tribe that, um, that Moses and Aaron are from and is the tribe of the priesthood. Um, and then this is what Moses tells them to do. He says to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword on his side and go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses' commandment, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Now those verses don't actually give all the details of what happened there. And there's kind of a question, which is given the commandment, why did only 3,000 people get killed? Remember, Israel is like 600,000 people. Some commentators like Calvin think that this was the group that was the ringleaders, that it was these 3,000 people that were the ones that kind of came to Aaron and got this thing going. Others think that it might have actually been a kind of almost civil war in the camp where Moses calls these people to his side and then another group is trying to follow this golden calf and oppose them and they end up fighting. Um, But regardless, that's harsh. There is no escaping that idolatry in this story and in scripture is viewed as serious business. 
We're also, though, meant to recognize in this act of the Levites that this is meant to be a kind of purifying discipline. Uh, It's actually this event that sets the Levites apart as the tribe of priests for Israel. In verse 29, Moses says, You've been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The point is that their obedience is costly, but it is a sort of purification for the people of God. So God is judging Israel here, but he doesn't destroy them, even though he threatens to. And we'll get to that in a minute. But instead, what he is doing is disciplining them to try to purify them from that idolatry. And that theme of purifying discipline is actually a very common one in the Bible. It's not one that I think we dwell on a lot in our circles. But just take one example from the book of Hebrews. The author is speaking to these people facing hardship, and persecution, and the world is trying to destroy the church. But the author doesn't blame the world. He actually explains to them what is happening this way. In Hebrews 12, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. So he says, what you are experiencing is discipline. But it's a discipline that stems from fatherly love. And he goes on to encourage the church. In verse 11, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that's what we mean by purifying discipline. It's painful in the moment, but it's ultimately leading to the fruit of righteousness. Like I said, we don't dwell on this theme. So let me try to give you a way to visualize the way Scripture speaks about this. So here's a picture of the church, right? Or the people of God. Um, There's Jesus, our representative head. In in the Old Testament, like here in Exodus, Moses is kind of in that role of the head of the people. And while each of us individually have a relationship to God, we're also part of this thing together. Except really there's two circles. In the Old Testament, there is Israel as a nation— And then there's those Israelites who commit themselves to believing and following the Lord from the heart. Um, At times, the prophets speak of that as true Israel. It's this smaller group within the larger group. And likewise, in the church, there is this visible church, which is everyone that's together in the church on Saturday mornings. And then there's what theologians call the invisible church, which is that group within them that really have trusted in Jesus for themselves and are seeking to follow him and belong to him. Um, There's always two circles. And here's the thing. Sometimes that inner circle is pretty big, but sometimes it is very small. And at any given point in history, the health of the church can be measured by how much of that outer circle is also within the inner circle. So, for example, at the low point of Israel under King Ahab, God tells the prophet um, Elijah that of the whole nation, there's 7,000 people that, that that are a faithful remnant, that are that inner circle. And we want people to be in the inner circle, just to be clear, not just the outer circle. And the smaller the inner circle gets, the more compromised and corrupted the church becomes, and the more our witness to the world suffers because they can't actually see real Christianity. They're just seeing this external thing. And the more even people within the inner circle are hurt. All right? So then our question, if you have that image in your mind, is how do you get those two circles to be closer to each other? How do you get most of the people to be in both circles? 
And there are two answers in the Bible, two ways that God does it. Sometimes, and this is the one we want, is that he does it through revival. Revival is really not the category that scripture would use for like going and getting a bunch of people who have never heard of Jesus saved. It's the category for people who are in the outer circle realizing that they need to really believe this thing from the heart and becoming a part of um, God's people. Other times, though, what God does in his wisdom, especially if the church is significantly compromised, is instead to shrink the outer circle, to discipline his people. That is what happens in the Old Testament exile. That's when you read the prophets speak of it, Israel is deeply compromised in so many ways with the surrounding culture. And so what God does is he leads them off into captivity. And 70 years later, what's restored is this faithful remnant of Israel, which is much purer, but also much smaller. And here's why I give you that picture. Um, just sitting with this text, I want to be careful because this is one of those things, I am not a prophet, right? And this is what Eric thinks as he looks at the world and seeks to read scripture. Um, but I am convinced as I watch what is happening in our world and especially in the West and in America, that the church is experiencing that kind of discipline. This is a season that we're starting to enter into and that it will probably get harder before it gets easier. That's what I think. That the challenges that the church faces and the way that especially its most compromised parts are collapsing and the struggles that we face are a mark of divine discipline. And I think it's something that will probably continue for a while. If that is true, there's two things from Scripture that we have to understand. One is that if that is true then we need to be seeking to be more faithful and not more compromised. One of the things that can happen is when that process of discipline starts, some people will look around and say, clearly the problem is we're not compromising enough. Like what we need to do is go further. And you understand if this is divine discipline that we're talking about, why that's a bad idea. So we need to seek to grow in faithfulness. Two, that if that is true, then we should be inspired and encouraged to pursue discipleship ourselves and long for the day when God has worked that purification and we can live more like the church again. There's a real sense in which, while that's hard, if that's what God is doing, it's something we should hope for. It used to be that 95% of Americans would identify as Christians. Today, it's about 75%. And I hear people wring their hands all the time about that, that, like that's terrible. And I know this is in some ways the contrarian in me, but honestly, like I, I, I look forward to the day when it's like 20% um, or less, I don't know. But, but, but if 20% of Americans were Christians, and those are people who are really from the heart trusting in Jesus and seeking to love the world in the ways he commands and love each other and live as a transformed community, like that's a people that can actually work real change and transformation in the world. That's a people that God can really move through and do something with. And I say that, and I do not want to romanticize it. When God's discipline comes... We will all feel it, right? The author of Hebrews says it is painful. And it will involve suffering, maybe even 
persecution, and I don't know. There will be people like us who are wounded in the process. But the thing to recognize in that is that if that's true, it is a good process for the church to undergo, and one that we should prayerfully seek to submit to and live into. And that hope should be affirmed by one last reality we get, which is that of God's covenant love. Our other source for hope in this, even as we experience that kind of discipline, is God's covenant love. For this to make sense, we need to recognize God in the Bible is often personified. Uh, he, you know, he, because he's incomprehensible and infinite, he pictures himself in ways we can understand. And sometimes it's obvious, like when he says right hand and God doesn't have a body. But one of the ways God is personified often is that he will have conversations with people and they develop like human conversations where God sort of shifts. But the point is just to show you something that's true. Um, The Bible tells us repeatedly that God does not change his mind, like in Numbers 23, where it says God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So that's clear. But then God sometimes has these conversations where he'll change his mind. And the point is not that he's really internally changing, but the point is to illustrate something that's true. And I'll show you what I mean here in our story. So God, after seeing the golden calf, says to Moses, Leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So God says, I'm going to take Israel out, Moses. We'll just start over with you. But Moses pushes back says he sought the Lord's favor and says, Lord, why should your anger burn against your people who you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? So Moses starts to pray for Israel. And in verse 12, he reminds God of his glory. And then in verse 13, he says this. He says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So this is important. Moses says, you made this covenant promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to bless them and their offspring and multiply them. And on the basis of that promise, forgive their sin. And then God does it. It says that the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So here's the thing, we could say a lot about that, but here's the thing you need to recognize about that. Is it the case that God had forgotten about the covenant that he made with Abraham, and then Moses reminded him, and he's like, oh yeah, I guess I can't destroy Israel. That is not what's going on here. Instead, the point is not that God needs to be reminded of this covenant, but that he is trying to remind Moses and Israel. It is not that he needs to be reminded of it, but he is trying to remind Israel of it because he wants them to understand why he is sparing them. Not because of something they're doing, but because of his unbreakable promise of love. Here's why that matters. That same covenant promise of love that God makes with them is the promise that we have as God's church even as we are experiencing divine discipline. In Scripture, God's love means his covenant commitment, that he chooses to love us and promises to love us, and then is committed to that love regardless of what happens with us. 
It's not like when my kids are good, and I'm like, oh, I love you guys. It's like when my kids are bad, but I'm still like, I'm your parent. I still love you. Every time that we come to the Lord's table, as we're going to in just a minute, over the cup, we say the words Jesus said. This is the new covenant, the new set of promises I am making with you as my people. This is the new covenant in my blood. The point of that is that just as God's promises to Israel mean that even though they have turned aside in these egregious ways, even though that has happened, that God is still committed to them, and will purify and work through them and bring them to a place of wholeness, that that same sort of promise has been made to us. That God will show mercy and love, even as we as a church, big picture, experience some hard times in his discipline, will bring us through it to a place of wholeness and health. We're going to dwell a little more on that theme of God's love next week as we see him reveal himself to Moses. But that's the hope that I want to leave us with here this morning. That even as we've seen all these hard things about ourselves, some hard things about how God may have to deal with us, that God still loves us and that none of that changes that reality. Not our idolatry, not the ways we compromise, not the hardness of our current situations. God has committed himself to us in love, and that love will ultimately bring us to a place of fruitfulness. Let's pray. Father, forgive us and purify us. I don't know what hope I would have reflecting on the sin and idolatry in my own heart, recognizing the brokenness of your church, but that you love us and have promised to work and continue to work to draw us back towards Jesus. Pray all of this in his name.